In the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses uh, 1 to 4, there is a passage that has been used frequently. And I'm not really sure that a lot of people understand the depth of history behind the passage. Paul writes this, Now concerning... So, well, why'd you stop there? Well, because what you don't see that I'm able to see is that in Paul's writing, he says, Perry Day. And he uses that every time he is making a change, a transition to something that he thinks is really important, that he wants to stress. And he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? Because they knew it all? They had sat down with their little books and they had made all their charts and they knew precisely when the Lord was coming back? No. Exactly the opposite. He he didn't need to write them anything because he goes on verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they'll not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, I just want to say a couple things about this passage personally before we move on to make the applications today. Had my wife known 22 years ago that she was going to start in labor and that she was in fact already having back labor, I would have never gotten in my semi and drove into Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. But she had no idea. Now, did she know that a pregnancy is nine months? Yes. I mean... Eric was the second child. But you see, just like with pregnancy, Paul is saying, you can't predict when those labor pains are going to start. And yet, how many of you, and you can raise your hands if you want or you don't have to, how many of you have read many an article and many a book written about, well, this is when the Lord's going to return. The Millerites, back in the 50s, got rid of everything they owned because they were convinced they had calculated the day on which it was going to happen. Now, let me ask you a second question then. Because it's repeated twice by Paul. If you knew that a thief was coming to your house tomorrow night to break in, 
what would you be doing? You'd be sitting up to greet them or else you'd get out of there and make sure nothing of value was there and you'd have somebody else sitting in there if you didn't want to be. Now, what can all of us do to make sure we're ready for whenever that thief chooses to come? We can be prepared, can't we? We can have locks on the doors. I have a friend who his whole job on the police department was to go around when people would request it and do safety security inspections of their home and make little changes like this door, you need some kind of a board at the bottom of it on a sliding glass door to keep it from opening. You should put pins in these windows. Just little suggestions like that. Because there are things that you and I can do to make sure we're ready when a thief comes. But again, can we predict the day, the time, the hour that a thief is going to be coming? No. And the biblical teaching is very clear. Nor can we predict the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I know there's a lot of people that will tell you a lot of things different about that. And there are a lot of people that will tell you, well, we got to have Israel do this or do that. We don't have to do anything. The Bible is very clear. Hebrews starts out by saying, we are living in the last days. And when was Hebrews written? Almost 2,000 years ago. Paul writes. Jude writes. In these last days. The time period from the ascension of Jesus Christ until the second coming of our Lord and Savior is the last days. We're living in that period of time. And because of that, we have to be ready. Now, a part of the problem is that we have also had people bifurcate, divide, separate the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for some supposed rapture that they think is in Scripture. Where He's going to come and pull all of the Christians out of the world. And there's going to be somebody left behind. I know you all have heard that teaching too, right? But if you go to the miracles, I mean the parables of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His teaching about the return, guess who's left behind? Have you really studied it or have you just taken those people's word? You go and study those parables and it's the Christians who are left behind. Not the sinners. It's the wheat, I mean the the weeds that is taken first and burnt. And then the Christians are there with the Lord. In verses 1 to 10 of this chapter 5 of Thessalonians, Paul's viewing that 
return that parousia from the perspective of the idea of impending judgment and threat if you're not ready. Now, the phrase that he uses is back in this first section. See it down there? Next line from the bottom. The day of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord meant judgment. Joel chapter 1.15 that we're going to come to talks about it in terms of judgment. It also meant deliverance. Again, Joel chapter 2 verses 31 to 32 that we'll look at next week talk about the day of the Lord as deliverance. And in the New Testament, the day of the Lord becomes the day of Christ. Philippians the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians. The day of the Lord Jesus, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So how do we understand all of this? Well, first of all, let me take you back to where we were at last week. What's called the hermeneutical application chart. When we look at a passage in the Bible, we first of all need to understand what the text says. Sometimes it doesn't say exactly what we've learned that it says. The example we've talked about is Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Remember? It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all that. It says in the Greek, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. And how do we know what love is? By joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all of that. We've got to know exactly what the text says. And I know most of you are not going to be studying the Greek. So you have to rely on somebody, and that puts the burden on me as your teacher. But once we understand what the text says, then we've got to understand how was that text understood in the Old Testament for Joel or in the first century for the early Christians. And then once we understand how they understood it, then we've got to try to figure out, okay, how does that apply to the world in which we're living in? And then we can make the application. We move from the Scripture, what the text says, how it was understood, how things are going on in our world, to the application of the passage. And so that brings us to where we're at today. And I, I want us just to think about this whole idea of the day of the Lord. Because I want you to know that the book of Joel is permeated with this idea of the day of the Lord. Now, there are no historical notes about Joel's ministry, his call, his commission. The only thing we know about who he is is that his name is Joel and he had a father named Pethuel. And the description that we have of him doesn't match any of the other 11 Joels that are in the Bible. 
we figure out from things that are said in the book that he probably lived and, and wrote during the time of Joash's youth. So we're talking about around 835 to 825 B.C. He is an 8th century prophet, which puts him in the time frame as Amos and Hosea. And thus, he's right there in the Old Testaments that we have, right between those books. It begins with the phrase, the Word of the Lord. And the Word of the Lord introduces prophetic books throughout the Old Testament. So we're going to look at Joel chapter 1-1 through chapter 2 verse 11 under this idea of the day of the Lord. But we're not going to read all that together. We're just going to read a section of it. But here's how it begins. The word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel. If you look at Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, and Zechariah, they all also begin with this phrase, the word of the Lord. And so we know that what we're going to read is prophecy, prophetic material that predominantly takes the word of the Lord and speaks to what's going on. Now, there's sometimes that it involves the future. But most of the time, it is hearing God's voice and making the application to the people that are in front of you. Which is exactly what Joel does. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders. Now, don't think New Testament church, elders, deacons, okay? This means you old men. You patriarchs. You guys that are the leaders of your families. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. You see, he's talking about something that's already happened. Have you ever seen anything like this? And you know what he's talking about? The locust plague. A natural disaster that had been experienced in the land at that time. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth and it has fangs of the lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. 
and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word this morning. Let me go back here. A reminder. We need to know what the text says. And the text is clearly talking about a plague of locusts. But it's obviously going beyond that as well. You say, well, how can you say that, Chauncey? Uh, Because I did a little study of bugs. And locusts don't have teeth like lions. They devour. So, not only is Joel telling us about a destruction, a natural disaster that happened, he's looking at that and saying, you know what? That is just like something else that's going on. In fact, if you think about it, for Paul, the day of the Lord is a threatening time of judgment, but even Jesus Himself said, Matthew 24, 43, it's going to come like a thief in the night. And and what does Paul mean when he says destruction? I know what we think about when we think about destruction. We can get a clue if we go to Paul's other writings. 2 Thessalonians. He writes it back to the same people. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, destruction means separation from God. Judgment as separation. I know you know what that means. Don't tell me that at some point, as parents or grandparents or teachers or leaders of young people, as a form of punishment, you didn't have to say to a child, you're not going to be able to play with the kids today. You've got to come in and stay in your room. Separation. Now, this little book of Joel is interesting. Because the outline of the book is that Joel starts out by talking about judgment. In fact, this whole section we're looking at today, through chapter 2, verse 11, is about judgment. And, interestingly, chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, parallels chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. He's repeating it with a different perspective so that we can get the message. And then, which we'll go to next week, he moves from judgment to repentance. And from repentance, in chapter 2, verse 18, he moves on to salvation. Judgment, repentance, and salvation. Not a bad outline, even for most of the New Testament. And, believe it or not, this little book that's only three chapters gets quoted, quoted at least eight times that I know of in the New Testament writings. 
It was an important little book to them. And the idea is, there's something that teaches us an important fact in that book. And that is, the day of the Lord is near. I believe that. I believe that the day of the Lord is near. Not necessarily because of anything that's going on, but because of the fact that we're closer to it now than they were a thousand years ago. So it's got to be getting near. And I do believe that things are getting pretty rotten in Denmark, as the old saying goes. But I also know that, guess what? The church is growing in other parts of the world. And growing rapidly. Not in the Western world, not in Europe, and not in the United States. But in the Oriental world, in Africa... Places where persecution's going on. The church is growing. And so Joel says to these people, hey, we need to understand some things about this. About this judgment. About the call to repentance. And about the salvation that's possible. And he begins with this whole concept that the day of the Lord is near, and he calls out four different groups. Verse 2, you elders, you old men, you patriarchs. Verse 5, the drunkards. Verse 11, the tillers or the farmers. Verse 13, the priests. Now, as I already shared, a terrible locust plague precipitated Joel's prophecy, his proclamation, his message. A natural disaster. Much like I and many others did way back when we had not a natural disaster, but an attack placed upon our country. September the 11th. There were very few churches that following Sunday, if not already that Wednesday night, that weren't in some way preaching a message that dealt with the disaster that had taken place. When I was living in Cornland, Illinois, name of the town, four streets by about seven streets, and I was the minister at that little church, And we had a series of tornadoes go through the Midwest. Illinois, Kentucky was hit hard. Louisville, Kentucky got hit by a a massive one. That Sunday, do you know what was a part of my message? The natural disasters. And that's what Joel is doing here. He's taking this natural disaster of the locusts and he's saying, let's think about that and let's make some application. And he calls out, first of all, uh, because, you see, here's what they believed. They believed that a natural disaster was an act of God. A manifestation of the day of the Lord. And they interpret the disaster in terms of current actions. And they look ahead also to the end of the age in doing that. 
And so the day of the Lord is both judgment with the hope of salvation. And he starts with the elders. Hear, listen, or give ear. I hope you hear the urgency in that. He's telling them twice with two different ways. Pay attention to what I'm about to say to you. That same phrase, hear and listen, give ear, we should have seen it and remembered it from back in Hosea chapter 5, verse 1, where it was used to, to let the people know that the priests and the leaders were just leading them into traps. They weren't actually giving them and being good guides and giving them good guidance. And to these old-timers, as Crenshaw translates the word, he tells them that they need to be teaching. They need to be exhorting because of the uniqueness of the locust plague. I think that we, in many ways, have missed opportunities to say to our people, look, here's something that has happened. Here is how God can and will use that. Not that He causes it, but how can He use it? I sat 13 years ago on October the 3rd with a group of young people that came to our after school program. I had just gotten the phone call that my father had been involved in a motor vehicle accident and had lost his life. My wife said, I'll let them know and we can go ahead and leave. I said, no. I went back in and I called all the kids together. Had them sit down. And I let them see me, a grown man, cry in their presence. But I also let them hear me say, I am sad that my father has lost his life, but I am also rejoicing that one day I will see him again. And every one of those kids that was sitting there heard a message of hope based on the disaster that I had just heard. Isn't that what we're called to do? If you're brought through suffering, doesn't Paul say it's so that you can help others who then suffer? You see, I hear in this an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 34, where they're told and exhorted to teach their children from the events of the days. And then he goes to that group, the drunkards, the gluttons, those who were using the fruit of the land in excess. Say, well, why would he single them out? Well, I think the reason why is he wants them to know, hey, no harvest? Because uh, the locusts not only ate the vines, they ate all that produce those grapes. No harvest, no wine. So you need to wake up from your stupor. That's the phrase he uses there. Wake up. Get alert. Farmers and vine growers, 
major areas of agricultural economy in that day. They had been ruined. No food, no income. And so along with the harvest being lost, guess what else would have been lost? The joy of the people had dried up. Don't you think? I mean, come on, we live in an agricultural community. Don't you think that if this year, about three weeks ago before any harvesting began, that a major disaster would have come up and we'd have had no harvest at all? Don't you think we'd be looking into the faces of some people who are in pretty deep despair? Absolutely. I mean, we've experienced on a lesser degree when due to drought several years ago, the the crops went into shock and there wasn't anywhere near the harvest. Some, but not zero. The priests, the fourth group, their dignity's destroyed. Look at verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. They're to take off their priestly white garments and they're to put on burlap. And they're to start lamenting and mourning. Because guess what? If there's no grain, no crops, and the animals also are suffering... Go down to chapter 1 that we didn't read, verse 16. Oh, how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. You see, the priests are going to have some problems because guess what? Their offering place had some money put in them, but the most of what was given was a tithe of their harvest and a tithe of their animals. All of that was given to the temple and to the priests. And it was a part of what they lived on. And so he's saying to these priests, hey, You need to take off your priestly garments and put on some sackcloth and lament. Do some mourning. Why? Because the day of the Lord, and here's the paradox, the day of the Lord is at the same time one event and many events. It was the locust plague. It was the invasion of the northern enemy. It was the pouring out of the Spirit in a positive way. It was the judgment that was going to come on all nations. All four of those in Joel are referred to as the day of the Lord. And each has the right to be called that. You see, we have locked in this concept of the day of the Lord to some day in the future when Christ is going to return. And that certainly is going to be a day of the Lord. But there's a whole lot of other days of the Lord that we need to pay attention to, listen to, hearken to, and start speaking publicly and openly. Because the day of the Lord means a decisive action of God to bring His plans to completion. It can be an act of punishment, but it can also be an act of salvation. 
But certainly, as with Paul in 1 Thessalonians, it's a day of accounting. So not only is the day of the Lord near, in it, there is this call to take action. It starts right there in verse 14 that we read. Put on sackcloth and lament over... Excuse me, that's 13. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Here's the action that we need to take. And by the way, it's the action that my congregation in southern Indiana took on September the 11th. They got on the phone, started calling around, and when I got home from school that day, the church building was lit and it was full of people. Why? Because they assembled. They went to the house of the Lord. And for many days thereafter, many people did fast. Now, this one I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands about. But how many of you, and see, I could claim the excuse, well, I'm diabetic. But you know what? Even though I'm diabetic, I do it in a safe way. How many of you fast? Take time to say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to set this aside. And I'm not, it, it doesn't have to be all food, fast can be partial. You can say for the next week, Father, I am not going to eat whatever you like the most. My wife. I'm not going to drink any Cokes. That'd be a good one for her. You don't have to just remove everything. But you remove something, and in the place of that, either the expense that it would have cost you or the time, you give that to the Lord. I'm going to go without lunch all week this week, and what I would have spent on lunch, I'm going to give it to this mission project. And during lunchtime, I'm going to pray for this mission that I'm giving the money to. Jesus doesn't say, if you fast. Did you notice that? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you fast. When you give. When you pray. Now, we don't say, well, that, that means we can just pray if we want to. That, we don't say, well, that just means we can give if we want to. But a lot of people say, well, that just means we can fast if we want to. Jesus didn't say if. He says when. When. We need to be fasting and praying, assembling together, coming to the church building more often. And we need to be lamenting. That's what Psalm 74 is. That can be your homework. Go read Psalm 74 and see if there are any times that your prayerful experience resembles that. And all this leads to my final point. If you think God is trying to say something to you or to us, by with all that's going on, all that's going on in our nation, all of the division that's happening politically and socially, the disease, whatever you think of it, if you think by chance that God is trying to tell us to wake up, 
to, to get involved and to do something, then we need to sound an alarm. We don't need to be quiet about it. If you think something is a direct message from God and you don't share that with me, you've hurt me. Because God might have revealed that to you. And when you come to me and you talk about it, we can sit down and we can look at those verses together and I can say, man, you're right on. So let's make everybody aware of this. What's Joel say? He says, get out the trumpet. There's a guy years ago, for some of us it seems like yesterday, but there was a guy that back in the 80s and 90s used to play the trumpet. He was a Christian player. His name was Phil Driscoll. And he did concerts everywhere. And he could play that trumpet. Man, I, 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 went, I went to two or three of his concerts just to listen to him. One time, though, he said he was talking about that passage in the New Testament where it says, the trumpets will blast. And they turned up his PA system, and he took that trumpet, and he warned people who had hearing issues to cover their heads. And he blasted that trumpet into that microphone. And he said, if you think that's loud, imagine a trumpet that's going to be heard around the world. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Listen to me. If you are prepared for the thief that's going to come in the night, that Jesus identified as the destroyer, the devil, if you're prepared and you believe that's going to happen, how much do you love your neighbors if you haven't sounded the trumpet and warned them? Let's pray. Father God, Joel is calling us to wake up and to look at the world around us. For him, it was a locust plague and an army attacking from the north. And that army did conquer Israel. But he's looking at those events and he's saying to us, because of the way we've been, because of the way we've lived, because of the way we have ignored God, judgment is going to happen. But help us, Father, to hear His message and to open our hearts and our minds so that we can receive that Word, so that we and our family and our friends can all be prepared when that thief does try to come in the night so that He can't steal from us that which is dearing and loving to us, Your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.